Terry Quornby has spent the past half century working in the field of demolition. He rose through the ranks to become the president of the Institute of Demolition Engineers, while gaining a reputation for his forthright manner and a willingness to express his opinion. We decided that opinion required a platform. And this new show is that platform. During this pilot episode, Terry Quornby discusses the impending demise of diesel. You can't be diesel. There, there isn't another alternative yet. There isn't another technology. The new National Emergency Services Support Task Force. Why has it taken so long to get to this stage? Industry competence cards. How good the education is behind that card is debatable. And his reaction to the ongoing investigation into alleged collusion within the UK demolition industry. If anybody or any organisation brings the Institute into disrepute, then they'll be dismissed. So this is Dr Terry Quornby. The surgery is now in session. We've seen lots of different variants of fuel being used in um, in plant and equipment. Um, uh, you know, say LPG, for example, that's been in use for many years, you know, forklifts and one thing and another. And, you know, e even in, in uh, uh, not just commercial, but domestic vehicles. But, uh, and, and of course, uh, it's cleaner, it's cheaper. And, on, and at the smaller end of the scale of, of equipment, it's uh, it's more powerful than diesel. But when we get to the big stuff, you know, the, the, the types of plants and equipment that we need to use to um, to, to fulfil our requirements in, in our sector, uh, and when you get to machines that are, that are um, heavier than 35 tonne, for example, right the way on up to 100, 200 tonnes, you can't beat diesel. There, there isn't another alternative yet. There isn't another technology that's been developed that a diesel engine can be taken offline for. Um, so it's still going to be around for quite a number of years yet. And, and once again, staying on this diesel theme, we're now at Euro 6 level now in terms of clean diesel um, for... Uh, for plants and heavy heavy goods vehicles, uh, that's still going to keep developing. You know, uh, it, next year probably it'll be Euro Seven, be even cleaner. You know, and, and all we need to do really is to take out nitrous oxide. Uh, we need to take out particulate matter, and we need to take out um, carbon dioxide. And it's all achievable. You know, every every new diesel engine coming online now is cl is cleaner more efficient to use now than, than its predecessor. All of this really is, why has it taken so long to get to this stage? You know, why haven't government um, agencies and non-governmental agencies um, come to the realisation that um, just as, say, you know, you know the way that we look at things, just from our point of view, is we know that constructors know very little and some of them know nothing at all about demolition and methods, you know, methodology and plant use and one thing or another. Uh, and we've accepted that as, as to be the norm. 
But we also got to accept as well that if you look upon the lines of the fire brigade in the way they work, they can't be expected to know everything there is to know about structural appreciation either, can they? You know, just by simply observing a building. It's, a, it's an impractical aspect to even consider. And therefore, um, they need assistance, don't they? They need help from those agencies or those organisations or even those individuals that do have a good uh, structural appreciation and that can give them sound advice. You know, we, we've seen in the past, haven't we, where we've had fatalities uh, arisen uh, with firemen going into a building that, that was inherently unsafe but appeared to be safe. Um, I think we had one in the Midlands quite a number of years back where they went in to rescue somebody in a steel frame building. Now, with the best will in the world, um, even if you had no idea at all about structures, you would think that a steel building would be quite safe for quite a, a length of time. And that if it was a timber building, on the other hand, you wouldn't have an awful lot of time. But it, the reality is that timber um, is... Um, a, a lot safer or, st or stays a lot stable for a lot len longer length of time than steel does. Because once heat has got into the steel, it changes the molecular structure of it and it becomes malleable and it fails very quickly. Whereas it takes a long time to burn through a big timber section. You know, it just chars on the outside for first. And you don't have to be a demolition expert to win something is probably the right word to use. When on the TV you see disasters occurring where um, a, a number of emergency teams go in to try and um, dig out people that are trapped under rubble. And, you know, nine and a half times out of ten, what you will see is a big excavator sitting on top of the rubble with a big bucket on <clears throat> and huge teeth on the bucket, digging into the rubble. I mean, if I was under that rubble, that's the last thing I want trying to release me um, from a, a, an early grave, shall we say. I'd much prefer if somebody had gone to a demolition company who had a machine with attachments such as selector grabs, uh, rot you know, rotation selector grabs, shears, grapples, anything like that, that you could get hold of a piece of rubble and lift it off rather than rather than drag it off and possibly do some untold damage to somebody that was underneath it. So, yeah, I just think it's a natural thing um, that uh, I wish they'd come to the demolition. I wish the fire brigade would come to the demolition industry uh, more often than they actually do. I mean, I, I, I can go back into the 1990s, early 1990s, and I had a telephone call from Belfast Fire Brigade, their urban search and rescue teams. And uh, this sub officer was very interested to learn if the demolition industry could do anything on their behalf, having himself seen quite a lot of buildings collapse in Belfast during the troubles and the, and the problems that they had in trying to release people from that rubble. So I went over there to talk to him at that time. And... Uh, and we were going to format some sort of training course for his guys in the fire brigade out there so that we could give them some appreciation of um, 
structural stability as well as what plant and equipment that they might want to procure or use or even get somebody else um, to operate on their behalf. Um, so, but, but I think politics got in the way at the time there and I never heard anything more about it. it and, in, and in fact, it's, it's telling, isn't it, that you get these other organisations that do have an appreciation of the skill set that a demolition contractor and his men has. Um, it doesn't seem to follow through, does it, to the constructors? They don't seem to get it at all, do they, that um, the demolition industry is very skillful, has got a lot uh, to give to, to uh, or, or ha has a lot of influence to give to you know, even construction projects, let alone uh, on search and rescue and the, and, the, and the emergency services. So the more people that have or get to that realisation that the demolition sector is a sector that should be taken seriously and it's people that work within it are very skillful, very knowledgeable, very experienced. Let's hope that we get to that stage quicker than we have done in the past. Yeah, we certainly have got a lot of cards. Uh, and I know that NDTG um, in, in, over the last few years have, have attempted to reduce the number of those cards that, are, that, that we're actually doing the circuit. Um, but we do need card keys because um, going back again to what I was just discussing with constructors, um, it's something that a constructor insists on, isn't it, that, uh, a demolition operative has a card that's been issued by um, by a card scheme that's been approved by them uh, before they'll allow them to go onto their onto their site and do any work. So, yeah, we will need it. We'll, we will need a card. How good the education is behind that card is debatable, because most of them, the cards are given through an assessment process not through a training process so it's assessment what kind of training what what kind of education have those lads had up until that point when they're about to be issued with that card that's something that we really do need to address um how we arrive at or how we we can determine what the the skill and the knowledge is uh behind that card and <clears throat> yeah the supervisor card and the manager card that's uh, available today, that does has a classroom element. But how good that is, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not uh, I, I'm not the person to ask that question to. But I, I have asked some of my guys that have been on both of those courses, supervisor and manager, um, and their comments have been varied, you know, as to how much they appreciated what was being taught and who it was that was teaching them uh, and then again there again uh, lies a problem we have within our industry and that's that's getting enough knowledgeable uh, and experienced guys at, at the training and assessment level so that they can tell or they can, they can at least um, give some appreciation of the guy's knowledge and experience sitting in front of them when they're about to offer them that card. Um, because there's a lot of training organisations out there now that are being involved in these card schemes and the trainers or the assessors 
that work for those companies have none or little demolition experience. That's quite worrying. So far, we've only discussed the operatives on site. Um, But those are not the only people that we have to consider when it comes to training and assessment. <clears throat> Excuse me about what their what their skill set is. We have to we have to consider managers, senior managers, and directors of demolition companies as well, who are instructing those guys to to undertake um, a set piece of work. You know, what level of experience, what level of knowledge, what level of training have those guys had? You know, before they took on those roles. I'm not. You know, I'm not having a go at senior managers and directors of demolition companies because um, in, in general, they're very, very good. They're very experienced people. I've met a lot of knowledgeable people in my years uh, and I've been very impressed with them. But at the same time, I've met quite a number who I would seriously doubt whether they were capable of um, giving instruction to guys undertaking some of the jobs, you know, you can get to drilling down into thinking that um, quite a lot of demolition companies specialise in different types of demolition. So, for example, if you um, had a demolition company that specialised in strip outs, for example, um, you would expect your guy who was only undertaking strip outs to get exactly the same card as was issued to any other operative working in the demolition industry. And those operatives might be working on top-down tower block demolition. They might be working in petrochemical uh, establishments, uh, or taking down power stations, oil rigs, you know, those sorts of um, large industrial structures where, you know, there are lots of dangerous, uh, there are lots of dangers um, uh, possible, or, or inherent within those type of structures, other than what you would uh, come across in, a, in a, a strip out, no matter how large it is. But the car scheme is exactly the same for those guys as it is for any, for anybody else. Um, so I think maybe we need to start thinking a bit on those lines about uh, giving a, a higher level of education to everybody in our sector and, and starting at those basics by saying, you know, demolition does not consist of this one job here, one job there. You know, demolition in in uh, goes right the way across the board uh, of, of of all industrial and commercial, as well as domestic structures and buildings. Um, so, yeah, I think we we've only scratched the surface with education at the moment. There's a hell of a long way to go yet. What you've got to remember is that the Institute of Demolition Engineers is for individual members. It's not a corporate organisation. It's for individual members. So those members individually have um, a duty to the Institute to pay its fees and dues on time if they want to retain their membership. Um, You know, having served 26 years on that council, I've... You know, I've I've heard all the excuses as to why people don't pay their subs, uh, and it gets, you know, you get aggravated at the end of the of the day about it because, you know, uh, there's no end of uh, uh, reasons that people give for not 
paying the subs. But, you know, we've drilled it down over the years to several uh, uh, reasons why people don't pay the subs. And um, uh, number one seems to be because that person has now left the employ of an employer who used to pay the subs for them. Um, so, yeah, they've, they've just let that slip. Um, uh, uh, the second one, I think, was uh, something like that, um, the individuals had a, an ongoing dispute with their employer as to uh, the value of retaining membership. And, and if the employer wants them to be a member of the institute, then the employer should pay uh, and and as a result of that, in a dispute, it, it never gets paid on time until there's the national secretary has to chase them up. Laziness, I suppose, as well comes into it. Uh, a lot of the members are lazy. They will they uh, they all know that the subs have to be paid at a certain time of the year, but they just they sit back, take take a view that yeah, I'll pay when I'm good and ready. Um, I'm in no rush. Uh, let them chase me for the money. Um, and then I think the last one really is, uh, and, and this is something that the Institute really needs to think about, is does a member think that they're getting value for money? Does a member think that being a, um, being a part of the Institute of Demolition Engineer is worth paying that fee? Uh, you know, we, we can't answer that. Uh, if you're sitting on council and you're running the institute, you, that's not uh, down to you to answer for the individual uh, themselves. But what you do have to ask yourself by being on that council of management is, if that is the case, are we actually giving them value for money? Uh, and I have to say as well, um, just on the fee paying, uh, at the Institute of Demolition Engineers, uh, annual subscriptions are amongst the cheapest that you'll ever find in any institute in the UK today. There's a more important um, issue at play, and that is um, making sure that the Institute retains standards that are not necessarily set by the Institute itself, but are set by the Engineering Council. So if you want to be a recognised um, institution in the UK today, you have to affiliate yourself with, um, with other organisations that, that are recognised by government and non-governmental organisations as setting standards for industry. And that's what we've had to do I, I, I keep using the royal we, I do apologise for that, but that's what the Institute has had to do over the years, and that is to follow the remit set by other um, institutions who, who, who they are affiliated to. So in terms of CPD, you would not be allowed to be an affiliated member of the Engineering Council if you didn't have a CPD scheme in place. And that's why when I was the president, I wrote our CPD scheme and I introduced it. And of course, I would be quite vociferous, wouldn't I, in the ensuing years from that to make sure that CPD did work, you know, because at the, at the end of the day, it, it was something that I created for the Institute.
Um, I am aware that there are um, corruption charges be, uh, about to be laid on organisations or individuals. I mean, I've not really researched that because I've not been involved in it either myself. Um, but another thing that I introduced when I was the president and I wrote uh, was our ethics and standards for our institute. And um, that's available to any member. It's, in fact, it's available to non-members. You know, it's uh, it's online. You can read it. Uh, and it states in there that if anybody or any organisation brings the institute into disrepute, then they'll be dismissed. Uh, so that goes for anybody. It's, it's, irrele uh, sorry, it's irrelevant at the end of the day who that person is. If you um, thought that you were going to bring the Institute or even the NFDC, for example, or the uh, training group into disrepute um, uh, from something that you have done yourself and you know has been a criminal act, then, yeah, you should fall on your sword. Yeah. Remove yourself from office, take yourself right away from the uh, that organisation so that it doesn't get dragged into the mire. Um, and, and just getting onto these, on, onto this subject matter uh, uh, as well. The officers of the Institute, um, irrespective of what position they might hold in their companies or irrespective of what they do in their trading hours, uh, for their organisations, also have a responsibility to the institute. They've they've allowed themselves to be um, elected into a position where they are part of the governing body of the institute, um, and standards and ethics applies to those people as well. You know, and I'm quite clear on this. And I always have been quite clear on this, which is why I've not always been a popular figure. And that is, if you don't do anything when you're on that committee or on that council of management, um, because you don't seem to have the time because you're running your own organisation or you're doing whatever you need to do, you need to come off that council rather than sit on it and take a role that that has no function uh, and has and has no real reason or you have no real reason to be there you're not doing yourself any favors and you're not doing the members any favors at the end of the day either we don't price for main contractors we've we haven't worked for a main contractor for seven years we've just refused to uh because one of the problems is the um qs departments of uh, most of these large organizations where they think that turnover is king, uh, when the sensible amongst us always have uh, always realised that profit is king, not turnover. But you know, if you want to, if you want to be involved and win a large job, <clears throat> um, part of the criteria or the tendering criteria generally is what your turnover is. How big is your turnover? Do you? Do you have enough money going through your organisation to fund and finance uh, this large job? Most SMEs will procure plant equipment and labour to the size of the job that they're undertaking. So, for example, um, e even our own 
company now. I mean, we could probably do, um, say, a big office block, and um, we've got the, we've got enough plants, we've got enough equipment, and we've got enough good operatives to be able to do that job. But if we were to given to be given a power station or an oil rig or a refinery or something along that scale, could we? Feasibly, could we realistically do that job? Yes, we could because we've got the skill set, we've got the people within the organisation to be able to to take a job like that on. A QS will say no, 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 you haven't, you can't do that. You're not big enough to take on that job. You know, which is a nonsense because all we would do is procure more plant, we procure more equipment, and we bring in extra or additional labour if we needed to do. And at the end of the job, we'd just drop it all back off again and revert back to where we were before. No, ultimately doable. Uh, and if we had that sort of attitude uh, prevailing right the way throughout the construction industry and the demolition industry together, uh, and we levelled the playing field for everybody, then perhaps we'd never have to get involved in all of these corruption um, uh, scenarios, you know? There would be no need of it, would there?